Welcome back to the program. As we debate immigration, as we look favorably on the dreamers, the young, undocumented students thriving here in America, it's easy to romanticize that experience and even draw conclusions from the success of individuals. The greater challenge, though, is to look at those successes and see what real-world lessons we might draw that can tell us more about success and failure and social mobility here in the U.S. My guest, Danelle Padilla-Peralta, is perhaps the penultimate success story. Raised in New York's shelters in East Harlem, he would ultimately graduate from Princeton, Oxford, and Stanford, and is currently a Mellon Research Fellow at Columbia University. He's written a memoir of his experiences. It's entitled Undocumented, a Dominican Boy's Odyssey from a Homeless Shelter to the Ivy League. It is my pleasure to welcome Danelle Padilla-Peralta to the program. Danelle, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you here. First of all, take us back to uh, four years old and coming to America and and talk a little bit about uh, what brought you here, what brought your mother here, really. So what brought us to America was that my mom uh, was pregnant with my younger brother and she was experiencing medical complications associated with gestational diabetes. And so she had received advice from her doctors in Santo Domingo to travel to the U.S. and obtain prenatal care. And so my dad and I went with her. Um, And we thought initially that it would only be a matter of a few months. Uh, My uh, mother would give birth, uh, and then we would return uh, to Santo Domingo. Uh, But after giving birth, my mom experienced some medical complications. And as she recovered, my dad and she began having conversations about living permanently in New York City. Uh, And those conversations were motivated in part by their realization that I really liked going to kindergarten in New York. What was it that your mother sensed about your experience in kindergarten, the fact that even at five years old you said you liked it, and that was enough for her to change her entire life? She began to see, first in the form of uh, some of the reports my kindergarten teachers were writing, but also in how I was enjoying the process of learning English, uh, that it might be advantageous to her two sons uh, to take advantage or to make full use of uh, the range of educational opportunities available in New York City. And that inspired her. She began to think to herself and then to say out loud to my dad, let's not head back to Santo Domingo where the opportunities for educational advancement are not quite what they are in New York City. Let's focus on staying here, making a new life here, and giving our children uh, full access to what New York has to offer. But for your dad, it was more complicated. It was more complicated for my dad um, because he was considerably older. Uh, my dad now is in uh, his, his late 70s. Um, and he didn't see how we could overcome the problem of not having proper documentation. Our visas lapsed uh, within a few months of our arrival in the States. And even though he and my mom tried uh, to get our immigration status adjusted, they weren't able to. And so he was having a very hard time finding steady and, and regular employment, and that really frustrated him. Uh, he didn't see how he could make ends meet on a consistent basis, and so he wanted to head back to Santo Domingo, which he eventually did. There were also aggravating circumstances in trying to change the immigration status. He was fleeced along the way. Yes, he was. Uh, he and my mom 
had uh, learned of someone in Washington Heights who might be able to expedite the process for them. They had no knowledge of uh, how the U.S. immigration system worked. And so uh, when they were told that this person could uh, make arrangements, uh, they met with the person. My dad met uh, with the person and, and paid him some money. And nothing came about of that. Nothing happened. Uh, that money was lost. Our savings went with it. Uh, and at that point, uh, my parents found themselves to be really in a bind. And ultimately, you would wind up evicted from, from the place you were living with your mother, and you would wind up in a shelter. Talk a little bit about that. So after my dad decided to return uh, to the Dominican Republic, my mom grew determined uh, to make things work out any way she could. And so she tried to take up a few odd jobs. She was working as a, as a babysitter for a family in our neighborhood. Um, and doing a few other jobs along the side. Uh, but we couldn't make our rent, and so eventually we were evicted from our apartment uh, in Queens. We lived for a few weeks in a basement, uh, and then uh, after that basement flooded, uh, we were directed uh, to the New York City shelter system. And so we spent the following year in two shelters, one in Chinatown, New York City, and the other in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And that shelter that you wound up in just happened to have a library. That's right. Uh, so the first shelter uh, to which we were assigned uh, was in a converted public school building. And so the, the shelter had a library where I could go uh, in the afternoons and evenings and read. And there was one book there uh, titled How People Lived in Ancient Greece and Rome. And so I happened to come across it one day, and I began reading about the Greeks and Romans. And the book opened my eyes to uh, this radically different uh, world uh, inhabited by people who had lived uh, millennia ago and who spoke different languages. Uh, and this world captivated me and inspired me with a desire to learn more about it. What was it that so captivated you even then at such a young age? So the first thing that captivated me uh, was the book's talk of this legacy. Uh, the book, in its opening paragraphs, had a discussion of the legacy of the Greeks and Romans, how, what they had contributed. And I already knew from conversations I'd, I'd had with my parents that uh, there were things about the Greeks and Romans that uh, were still very much a part of our contemporary lives. My, my dad had made occasional references to Greek philosophy, although I was eight. I had no idea what he was talking about. Uh, and there were even some jokes they made that uh, were really hinged on understanding something about uh, the Greek and Roman world. So in the first instance, it was really trying to get my handle on uh, what it was about the Greek and Roman world that my parents knew and that had somehow interested them. But there was also the realization that this world was so different from anything I knew, from anything in the shelter, anything in the neighborhoods uh, in which I'd grown up. And that motivated me to begin thinking of ways that I might follow that interest further. There was also somebody at the library, this guy Jeff, that really would change your life in profound ways. Jeff was uh, a volunteer arts instructor at our second shelter, and he saw me reading one day, and he decided to take me under his wing. And one of the very first conversations we had uh, was about the possibility of my attending a New York City private school. Uh, he was very insistent, and he communicated as much to my mom that I needed every 
conceivable educational opportunity uh, in order to flourish intellectually and to grow up uh, uh, and, 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 and really fulfill my mom's dreams uh, for me and, and my brother. And so he introduced us to the private school system. He helped us navigate it in all its dizzying complexity. Uh, he showed us how to fill out the applications and he even took me to some of these schools so that I could see what these schools were like, how people were learning in these schools. And that fueled me with the determination to attend those schools. What was his motivation? What did he see in you? Why did he jump in so profoundly? As I told him many years after the fact, uh, <laughs> for the longest time, I had no idea why he was so motivated uh, to help me, right? I, I, I felt that uh, I just couldn't quite understand why he had taken such an interest in me. And it really took a lot for me to appreciate the full extent of his altruism. He had seen me, and in some way, he had seen a version of himself. Uh, and he was determined to help me satisfy my curiosity about the bigger world. Um, and that desire that he saw in me uh, was something that uh, he was determined to help uh, me find a, a satisfaction for. And so, in a way, one of the challenges of my adolescence and early adulthood was trying to understand how someone could be so altruistic, so selfless, uh, that he would commit himself fully to making sure that I had every opportunity at my disposal. As you watched other kids in the neighborhood, other kids that, that grew up in the same environment that you did, that didn't have these advantages, that didn't have the scholarship, that weren't able to go to the private school, how did you relate yourself to their experience? So I went through several different phases uh, in, in trying to make sense of the disconnect between their experiences and mine. So the first phase had to do with my complete self-immersion uh, in the novelty and the opportunities afforded by my new experiences. So I was so caught up in trying to uh, adjust to new life at this private school and to make new friends at this private school uh, that initially I was somewhat indifferent to what uh, my friends were experiencing. But over time I began to realize that this disconnect um, was actually uh, grounded in something else, something deeper. Um, it had to do uh, with this systemic inequality. I had been fortunate in that I had met someone who was able to help me see and pursue uh, the dreams I had for myself. But many of my friends didn't have that someone in their lives. And that in turn spoke to a bigger issue, uh, which was that we were growing up in a neighborhood uh, that was the product of a set of systemic inequalities, a product of a set of discriminatory, long-standing discriminatory policies that denied them access to their opportunities. So by turns, I felt guilty about the opportunity I enjoyed, but I was also frustrated and infuriated by the presence of the inequality that rendered my friends' lives uh, so marginal that excluded them from the opportunities I had. Was there an element where you saw yourself as, as superior to them in some ways, that, that you understood yourself to be smarter or more curious, that, that you saw yourself apart from them? So when I first got into my private school and well into my high school years, I would think, oh, I made it to the school and I made, got, made, had all these opportunities presented to me because I'm smarter, because I have these gifts and others don't. But then I realized that this too was a kind of trap that I seduced myself. Uh, that, you know, I, I couldn't 
pass judgments on whether I, I was actually smarter than my peers who didn't have these opportunities. And I knew that much of my success rode on the fact that I had been very lucky. Uh, I knew that, for example, had I not met Jeff, things would have been very different. Uh, I knew that had I not gotten into collegiate, things would have been very different. Um, and so I began to move away from that position. I began to think of why it was that I had enjoyed this unique set of advantages where my friends hadn't. And I realized in time that there were, in fact, several explanations for this, all of which uh, tended to converge on the idea that there had been a combination of good fortune and an aspect of privilege um, that came about in part because uh, of some very unique circumstances distinctive uh, to my upbringing. Um, but no, by the time I left high school and went on to college, I didn't think I was any smarter than my friends who had, had, who had not had the opportunities I had. What did it begin to tell you, though, about chance, about luck, about why people move, where they wind up, and, and the fragility of that as it relates ultimately to, to success? Right. Uh, so one of the uh, many sort of discoveries, epiphanies, if you will, of, of late high school and college, after I realized, you know what, my friends who didn't have these opportunities are as smart, if not more smart than I am. So what then is the role of luck? One of the epiphanies had to do precisely with the sense that this luck uh, was something that we needed to uh, collectively as communities, as, as a society, uh, address. Because to say that someone's life hinges on luck or to say that particular outcomes hinge on luck or good fortune is also to imply on some level that there is no provisioning uh, for the kinds of structurally mediated large-scale equalities of opportunity that we really need in American society. Should we really allocate things based on luck or random chance or the role of dice? And so as I was in college and making my way through college, I began to pursue a range of interests that helped me rethink uh, some of these commitments. I became very interested in education reform and immigration policy as a result. And I became convinced that in order to think carefully about how to improve our society, we needed to address the fact that too often outcomes hinged uh, on structural inequality, and that those few who were able to get out of the hood, as I was able to get out of, had done so mainly on the basis of a few good, fortunate rolls of the dice, but that this shouldn't be how it works. The danger, of course, is that people look at your life and your experience and say, see, social mobility exists, here's an example of it, and try and read too much from your specific experience. That's right, and this is something that I'm very concerned to, to fight against, uh, to, to fend off at every uh, conceivable opportunity. Now, there's a marvelous passage in one of James Baldwin's essays where he talks about, in Price of the Ticket, how there is a tendency in American culture and in discussions of upward mobility in American culture to privilege the exceptional and to say, aha, the fact that we have this uh, particular uh, narrative of upward, of upward mobility, of progress in the form of this one person, means that our system is working right. But as Baldwin wrote, and as I think we, we need to take on board, uh, the fact that one person has this exceptional trajectory or has what's construed by American standards as an exceptional trajectory does not validate uh, the current setup of the society. It doesn't tell us anything about broader patterns of structural inequality, for example. So my story, I hope, shines a light on what can happen when one gets these opportunities. But it should also shine a light on the kinds of things we need to do in order to continue facilitating upward mobility for undocumented immigrants, for documented immigrants, 
and for people who come um, from the marginalized sectors of American society. What role, then, did your story continue to play as you moved up, as you went to Princeton and went to Oxford and ultimately to Stanford? What role did the personal story that you brought with you play once you moved out of the neighborhood? So the personal story played several roles, each specific to um, where I was on the developmental arc. So when I was in college, I didn't really talk much about um, the details of my undocumented status. I, I, I was happy to discuss uh, the fact that I had grown up in, in Harlem and that I had, uh, from Harlem, uh, managed to get into uh, a private school on Manhattan's Upper West Side, but that was about it. I wasn't really keen to talk about uh, my lack of documentation. But I was also doing a lot of reflecting on uh, my lack of documentation and on how it intersected um, with other parts uh, of, of, of my life, how it had, in fact, intersected with other forms of deprivation and marginalization. And so in college, I became interested in education reform and in immigration reform for that reason, because I saw all of these different areas uh, of American society that needed uh, to benefit from sustained interventions. Moving outward then after Princeton and continuing with my studies uh, at Oxford and then at Stanford, uh, after I came out with my story of being undocumented, that story did feature in, in the presentation of my life to others. Uh, people knew what my status was and I had to give an accounting of that somehow. And so I used the fact of my status being public as an opportunity to engage friends, peers, uh, community members in a conversation about what exactly is at stake in having this dysfunctional and sclerotic immigration system. What is at stake in having uh, neighborhoods uh, that are deprived of access uh, to uh, excellent schools uh, and the consequences that flow out of that. And so that really became an obsession of my last few years, using my story as a way to link up to other narratives uh, of affecting social change. Beyond that, what does it tell us and, and what do you take away from this in terms of the broader context of how we look at, at strangers among us, how we treat foreigners, and how we see that as kind of the overlay of some of the specifics we've been talking about? So I, I, I spend a fair bit of time uh, in, in my professional work uh, engaging religious texts since I'm a Roman historian by training and I focus on uh, trends in religious practice in Rome and in the ancient world and in uh, contemporary societies as well. And so I think to uh, a part of Leviticus, a, a section of Leviticus that is normally not brought up uh, in conversations about immigration. Uh, it is this injunction, Leviticus 1933, uh, in which it is stated, when a stranger sojourns among you, you shall do him no wrong. Uh, and I think about this because often there in this sort of polarized environment about U.S. immigration uh, policy. Um, there is a tendency to pathologize, to demonize, to stigmatize undocumented immigrants. And this is something that needs to be fought against, and this is something I'm committed to fighting against. I see the book that I wrote as contributing two things uh, to um, this broader discussion, uh, and my life story is contributing two things. The first is a, it's a story about uh, the need for immigration reform. Why should undocumented immigrants have to face the psychic, economic, social um, uh, costs of this broken immigration system? The second story that I see coming out of the memoir itself um, and contributing uh, to the arc of other conversations in education and elsewhere 
is on the importance of a humanistic education. I was fortunate to have access to books that really transformed my life and got me to thinking about uh, my own place in the world in a radically different way. Uh, and we need to extend that privilege uh, and the opportunity that comes with a humanistic education to as many Americans as possible. It's interesting that there are both extremes within this context, the, the stigmatizing that you talk about, but also the romanticizing of your individual experience and the success right. of that. And, and it's hard right. to navigate away from those two extremes. Right. And it's really it's imperative to find a middle ground between the two. Uh, and in the crafting of the memoir, I really tried my hardest to... Uh, find this middle path. And this is, in fact, one of the things that I raised uh, near the very end of the memoir, because invariably I felt there would be uh, readers who would take the story and who will take the story and draw up a sentimentalizing uh, or romanticizing uh, interpretation of it. And my insistence throughout uh, is to foreground how, instead of adopting the pathologizing attitude uh, we just mentioned, or the romanticizing one you also alluded to. We need to think about the individual's place in a broader consta, in a bigger constellation of social and institutional forces, and reflect on how we can reconfigure those forces to benefit more people, not just the select few. Do we make a mistake, then, in focusing too much attention in the broad immigration debate on the dreamers, as opposed to all the other aspects that we've been touching on? So one of the challenges that I faced when I began uh, advocacy um, and when I participated in advocacy with the Dreamers in the summer of 2006 was precisely uh, the question of whether in uh, focusing on Dreamers uh, we displace attention uh, from uh, their families, from their relatives who are not Dreamers, who are not young uh, adults, uh, college-bound or college-graduated uh, adults. And one of the realizations I had was that we need to have a comprehensive discussion. So the dreamers are part of that, and I see myself as a dreamer, and I feel in, in deeply indebted uh, to those dreamers whom I've chatted uh, about immigration reform with and whom I've met over the years. But we also need to think beyond the dreamers, of course. One of the shocks, one of the most unpleasant uh, discoveries of the past few years uh, has been that we have had in the White House a president, uh, a Democratic president, who nonetheless, in the first few years of his presidency, embarked on this far-reaching and unprecedented in magnitude deportation program. And so as dreamers and other advocates of immigrant reform realized this, um, we began clamoring for reversal to these policies. Um, but what that meant was that we needed then to shift the conversation away solely from focusing on undocumented youth to encompassing all undocumented immigrants at all of their different stages and all different parts of the country. And so we need then to continue having a comprehensive conversation and not one that is limited solely to a specific subset of undocumented immigrants. One of the things that's happened in the intervening period is the changing nature of the economic underpinnings that drive immigration. So that, that when we talk about reform today, we're talking about it arguably in a different context than we were three, four, five years ago. And, and that doesn't get addressed in, in the discussion today. 
Uh, that's right. Uh, so the the changing economic imperatives and and incentive structures associated with immigration have changed a great deal, uh, especially since the 2008 economic downturn. Uh, among other things, the downturn uh, was uh, responsible for uh, a downturn in migratory flows. Uh, if, if you look at the evidence, one can see quite clearly uh, that uh, the temp- the shrinking of the economy precipitated by the downturn and the shrinking uh, of available opportunities opportunities for work uh, that led in turn to a diminution in the number uh, of immigrants up until uh, a few years ago when the net immigration rate uh, was effectively zero. Uh, So one of the issues that we have to foreground in conversations about immigration uh, is the economic incentive structure uh, for migratory flows. And so that means that we have to think about immigrants on several different levels. We have to think about unskilled and skilled labor. We have to think about uh, realigning institutional uh, and and legal uh, frameworks uh, in order to better enable talent to arrive to our countries, but we also to our country. But we also need to have a more expansive understanding of what talent is. Uh, we need to think very carefully about ensuring that it's not only super skilled in a conventional sense workers uh, that are provided uh, with these opportunities in the form of work visas. We need to extend our vision to encompass a broad range of laborers and to see their potential contributions to the economy as collaborating and being harmonious with the work of American-born laborers as well. Do we learn anything from the historical context of other waves of immigration? Are there things that we can bring from that experience to the discussion today so that we're not starting at ground zero? Absolutely. Uh, One of the concerns of, that I have as I talk about the book and as I, I pitch it to a broader readership is that we think not only about our contemporary policy discussions, but about the long history of immigration control and policing in the United States. And I'm fortunate that at the Society of Fellows at Columbia, I have a colleague who uh, is working on and is writing extensively about uh, immigration uh, protocols and, and procedures in the late 1800s uh, when uh, the animus directed against Irish immigrants uh, really peaked. Um, One of the things that we can see from studying the historical record is how uh, these mechanisms of enforcement, control, deportation were built on uh, the agonizing and pathologizing treatment that was doled out uh, to successive waves of immigrants in the late 1800s and in the early 1900s. Irish immigrants, Italian immigrants, Asian immigrants, and here one can think of the Exclusion Act. Um, And so in order to develop a better sense of how to fashion a public conversation, we need to engage the historical record in a far more substantive way than we've been accustomed to doing. Danel Padilla-Peralta, his book is Undocumented, A Dominican Boy's Odyssey from a Homeless Shelter to the Ivy League. Danielle, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.